0: praise Jesus. Have a seat. All right, it's that time of the service. We want to invite the children to come up here for our children's sermon. If you're a child, we want to see you right up here. Come on up here and have a seat. All right. Hey, guys. Come on up here, guys. It's good to see you this morning. Come on up, have a seat. That's good, right here. It's fine. Yeah. Come on, Ava. All right. Oh, I see him. Yeah. Hey, Abel. All right, I think that's everybody. What do you guys like about having a really good friend? What do you that we can talk to them? That you can talk to them. That's wonderful. What else is good about having a really good friend? They're always there for you, They're always there for you. you can depend on them. Anybody else? What's good about having a good friend? Anybody in here? First of all, I should have asked you, does anybody in here have a friend, at least one friend? Okay. Hey, buddy, what were you going to say? What's good about having a good friend? Uh, you, can always rely on them. you can rely on them. I love all those qualities. Anybody else? What's good about having a good friend? So when you're sad, they, will feel sad. they can feel sad with you when you're sad. Yeah, and we get to have fun and play together. Do you guys like to play with your friends? Like games? Do you play games with your friends? So it's really important to have friends because they really make our life a lot better, don't they? Yeah. You know the Bible says that Jesus is a friend to sinners. Did you know that? Now the good news is the Bible also says all of us have sinned and fallen short of the, of the glory of God. So all of us are sinners But Jesus came and died on the cross for our sins, and then invites us to turn from our sin and trust in Him as our Lord and Savior. So you know what? Jesus wants to be your friend. Did you know that? And did you know that when we become friends with Jesus, He does some pretty amazing things in our lives? Did you know that? What are some things that the Bible says that Jesus does in our lives when we become His friend? He makes you into a new creation. Yes. Anybody else? Sophie. He helps you share the gospel. Yes. The Holy Spirit indwells you. Yes. Yeah, buddy. He blesses, you. he blesses you. Yes. Man, you guys are preaching a good sermon today. This is great. You got some good Bible teachers, whoever's teaching you guys the Bible. Yeah, buddy. But, um, what does Jesus do in your life? What's He do for you? Makes you a new creation. Makes you a new creation. That's right. Last call. Anybody else? He provides for you. He provides for you. Yes. He does all of those things for His friends. And we can be Jesus' friend. Did you know that? Turn from our sin, trust in Him as our Lord and Savior, makes us Jesus' friend. All right? The word of the day today, as you guessed it, is friend. All right? Friend. So count how many times I say the word friend today. Let me know on your way out, okay? All right, you guys did a great job. Thank you. All right, church, will you take a copy out of God's Word with me today and open up to Acts chapter 19. Acts chapter 19. As Brandon mentioned earlier, today we're going to be talking about our relationship with Jesus and the call by Jesus upon our lives to live in a discipleship relationship, to live in a discipleship relationship. That's what Jesus calls us to. In Acts chapter 19, verse 11, we're going to catch up with the Apostle Paul on his third missionary journey in the town of Ephesus. So Paul is in Ephesus. God's doing some pretty amazing things in his life. So look with me in Acts chapter 19, beginning in verse 11. Acts 19, verse 11. God was performing extraordinary miracles by Paul's hands so that even face cloths or aprons that had touched his skin were brought to the sick, and the diseases left them, and evil spirits came out of them. I'm not going to lie, church. When I read passages like this in the Bible, in the book of Acts, it makes me nervous. And I have to look into my heart and and I wonder why when I read this, does it make me nervous? Well, I can think of two reasons in my own life why reading this makes me nervous. The first one is this. I've learned about too many charlatans on TV who claim to be healing people in Jesus' name only to recognize over time that they're really just preying upon people for their money. Anybody else know what I'm talking about? Okay, so we know that's happening in the world. So when I read about people being being healed, I'm sorry to say that I immediately get nervous because that's what I think of. And I'm not saying that I should think about that. I'm just telling you that's what comes through my mind. The second reason, and perhaps at a deeper, uh, maybe a little bit uh, more disconcerting level for myself, is that my Western, modern upbringing trained me to bifurcate the physical and the metaphysical. So I have deep inside my mind, rooted in my mind in my heart, that you have sort of your spiritual life here, right? That's your God stuff. And then over here, the other part of your life is the physical stuff that you can see and touch and taste and hear and all that stuff. And those two things are supposed to be separated. Now, that's not true, but that's what resides in my heart. And I bet that some of you think that way as well. At the the heart of that belief is the idea that God can't heal a sickness, right? That God exists for spiritual things and my doctor exists for healing physical things. Well, that's wrong. Because God created the world and everything in it. God is sovereign over the world. God oversees every process in this world, including your life, both your spiritual and your physical life. God has the power, the capability, and he does at times in this world heal people who are sick and possessed of demons. So I wanted to tell you that because I thought maybe some of you would feel that way as well as you read this. So let me point out a couple things that are important in this text and we'll apply the first part to our lives. Look at verse 11. Verse 11 says, God was performing extraordinary miracles. Now we could read that over and miss the point. According to verse 11, who was performing extraordinary miracles? God was. Wait, no, no, no. I thought it was Paul. No, it was through Paul. God was performing extraordinary miracles through Paul. Number two. God's power was so strong through Paul... That face cloths he touched were given to the diseased and possessed, and they were healed. Now, this is interesting. This isn't the only time this is described in the book of Acts, and, or in the New Testament. In the book of Mark, chapter 5, a bleeding woman approaches Jesus in a crowd, walks up to him, is able to reach out and just touch the hem of his cloak and she's healed of that illness. And then earlier in Acts chapter 5, people were healed if Peter's shadow just passed over them. While you probably have a lot of questions about that, and about what God is doing through Paul in Ephesus, there's really one question that we need to answer today so that we can apply this part of the text to our own lives as we walk with Jesus. This is the question. Why was God doing these miracles through Paul? Now let me ask you, were any of you the kid that always asked why? Were there any why kids? Like, did you ask why so much that your parents and people told you? Because. That's the answer, all right? The answer is because. I got that a lot when I was a kid, and it's not a bad quality to ask that question. In fact, I've not lost that habit. I ask why all the time. In this text, my question is not to be in awe, of course I am, of what God had done here through Paul, but the question of the day here is why was God doing that? Because God didn't do that all the time. He was doing it here in this specific instance. Why did God do that? Well, there's two answers. First and foremost, events such as these were sign miracles. And so if you're driving down um, Flagler Street, Flagler Avenue, um, and you're driving down and you see a sign on the right that tells you how fast you're supposed to go, anybody remember how fast you're supposed to go on Flagler? 30. 30. Right? You can go 35 on Roosevelt over there. 35, 30. The good, you know, the, the interesting thing is you, you can't go over 35 anywhere on this island, just in case you're wondering. That's the fastest you're allowed to go here. Most of the time, it's, it's 30 or 25 or even 20. Those are signs, right? We know how fast to go because of the speed limit sign. In the New Testament, miracles were performed, yes, to bless people who were sick or needed to be uh, healed of um, indwelling demons. Those existed to bless people, but they existed for a greater purpose. Healing and exorcism didn't just take place for the good of the person. That was kind of the fringe benefit. They existed as signs to point to Jesus as the Messiah. That's what's called a sign miracle. God's performing this sign through Paul to demonstrate His power over sickness and demon possession to lead people to faith in Jesus. Why is God performing this miracle? Number one, To demonstrate the power of Christ so that people would turn from sin and trust in Him as Lord and Savior. Because how does it help a person to be healed of blindness or disease or to have a demon pulled out of them if they're not saved by Jesus, right? The healing would be just temporary, but the healing that comes through a relationship with Jesus is eternal, so these miracles were signs pointing to the power of Jesus over all things in creation. Number two, why did God perform these miracles? These miracles came about because people demonstrated faith in Jesus and in his power to heal and to exercise demons. As Jesus said to the bleeding woman who reached out and touched the hem of his garment, your faith has made you better, or your faith has healed you. Their faith in the power of Jesus is what healed them. So, those, those, those um, handkerchiefs that people were, were getting from Paul and taking to those people, they didn't have some ornate power inside of them. That's not how God works. It was their faith in Jesus as the healer demonstrated through Paul that provided their healing as a sign to demonstrate the power of Jesus over all creation, and especially the power of Jesus as the Messiah who's come to take away the sins of the world. I believe that God is the great physician. That's what the Bible says about him. And I believe that he is still working in miraculous ways in this world. The most important thing for us to remember as we consider how he will work in our lives, is the end to which he works. For his glory and our eternal benefit. Why does God work in our lives? For his glory and for our eternal benefit. Listen to Romans chapter 11, verse 36. For from him and through him And to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. In this age, the age of the church, the age from which Jesus came and then ascended to be at the right hand of the Father, while we await for Jesus' return, is the age of the church. That's the age we live in today. Miraculous signs exist to point the world to Christ. Because our mission as believers, our mission as the church, is to go from this place and to share the gospel, to make disciples, to teach people to follow Jesus. That's why we exist. That's why we're here. So that people might repent of sin and trust in Him as Lord and Savior. As sons and daughters of God, through our relationship with Jesus, He's going to do a great work in your life. That's his desire. That's why he didn't just take you to be with him in heaven when you were saved. Because you have a mission to accomplish for him. So God exists to do two things here in this world. One, to give and bring himself glory. And two, to work to your eternal benefit. Listen to Romans 8.28. We know that all things work together for the good of those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. We are the church of Jesus Christ. He's redeemed us from the penalty of our sin. He's reconciled us with the Father and restored our purpose for living. He's released us from captivity and renewed our strength to be on mission from Him. And now we run the race and magnify Jesus in all that we do. That's the point of these miraculous events in Ephesus. That's the point of everything God does through you and you and you today. To point and magnify Jesus. Listen, at some point in your life you heard the gospel about Jesus Christ. You heard that you were a sinner, that you were separated from God. Right? You with me? You tracking? And then someone told you the good news, but, but God loved you and he sent his son to die for you. And, and, and so Jesus came and, and he lived this perfect life and he died as an atonement or sacrifice for us on the cross. His blood was shed on your behalf. He received the wrath of God for your sin. He who knew no sin became sin on your behalf. He died on the cross and he was buried in the ground. But on the third day, he rose again in fulfillment of the scriptures. You heard that message, and you turn from your sin and trust in Jesus as your Lord and Savior. Now, everything that God uses you to do is to point people to Jesus. That's why we exist, to magnify the King. We are His messengers. We are His ambassadors. And we exist to make His name great and known among the nations The foundation of every good thing that we accomplish for God is found in Jesus Christ. The name of Jesus is not some kind of magic formula that makes things happen. It's a discipleship relationship with Him that produces spiritual fruit in our lives. I remember a while back... I needed someone to do some work on my car. We were in Jacksonville. I didn't know very many people, and I didn't know a good mechanic, and so I asked a friend, "Um, hey, I need a mechanic. Can you let me know who's, you know, who's good and fair, right? So what we want, what do we want out of a mechanic? We want someone that's really good at their job and won't charge us much money, right? Who cares about the mechanic who needs to make ends meet, Matt, right? But we want really good and cheap, right? But those usually don't go together, right? You want a good mechanic, you got to pay for it. So my friend, uh, he told me, oh, go to this mechanic, right? I've never been there, but my friend uses, uses him. I'm like, okay. He said, so when you go there, tell him that Tim sent you. And, so, and he'll give you the sweet deal, right? We want, that's what we want from the mechanic, right? We want the sweet deal. And every mechanic probably gets the same thing every time someone comes in. They want the sweet, right? So I go in, and I go to the mechanic. and I'm like, hey, how's it going? Yeah, my, my truck's broke, and I think this is what it is. And he goes, all right. And I said, by the way, Tim sent me. He goes, oh, interesting. Here's what I thought was going to happen. Oh, Tim sent you. Okay. Let me move this charge, this book away with all the prices. Let me get the special one out. Open it up for the sweet deal. He said, who's Tim? (laughs) And then I realized, I didn't even know his last name. I'd never met Tim. And then I had to tell the mechanic, oh, it's a friend of a friend. My, My friend, my friend Bill. Told me to come here, and he said this guy Tim comes and that I should tell you his name. I should drop Tim. It was really embarrassing. (laughs) When it comes to getting the sweet deal at the mechanic, you can't be the friend of a friend. You got to actually be the friend of the mechanic, right? That's the way it works. Jesus didn't die on the cross. Jesus wasn't buried in the ground. Jesus didn't raise to life on the third day. Jesus didn't ascend to be at the right hand of the Father, to be a friend of a friend of yours. Jesus came to be your friend, your Lord, and your Savior. You will not experience the benefit and the fruit of following Jesus if he's just a friend of a friend. That's the problem in Ephesus. This is what's going to happen next. Some of the people didn't understand this. Look at verse 13. Now some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists also attempted to pronounce the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I command you by the Jesus that Paul preaches. Right? Friend of a friend. Seven sons of Sceva, a Jewish high priest, were doing this. The evil spirit answered them. Wow. First of all, would y'all be ready for the evil spirit to talk back? That would be pretty freaky. The evil spirit talks back through this man that he's indwelled. I know Jesus, and I recognize Paul, but who are you? Just like the mechanic. Then the man who had the evil spirit jumped on them, overpowered them all, and prevailed against them, so that they ran out of the house naked and wounded. That would have been kind of embarrassing. When this became known to everyone who lived in Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, they became afraid, and the name of the Lord was held in high esteem. So the way that Paul is being used by God, it has become known in Ephesus, right? So So God is doing amazing things through Paul. So the name of Jesus through Paul's preaching and healing is being magnified, so much so that these these Jewish exorcists hear about what what God's doing through Paul. I want to read just a little bit to you from one one scholar's work here about what this is, all right? So I think it's important for you to know this. So in the Greco-Roman world, Jewish exorcists were held in high esteem For the venerability of their religion and the strangeness of their Hebrew incantations, magicians and charlatans were omnipresent in the culture, offering various cures and blessings by their spells and their incantations, all for financial consideration, of course. The more exotic the incantation, the more effective it was deemed to be. Ancient magicians were syncretists, And then they would borrow terms from any religion that sounded sufficiently strange to be deemed effective. So these Jewish exorcists in in Ephesus were just plying their trade. So so they heard this spell from Paul. He would share the gospel. He would compel a spirit to come out of someone who is possessed in the name of Jesus. So these seven sons of Sceva, they see this, they hear about it, and they're like, hey... I think we could do this and make some money. Look how effective it is. And so they find this, this guy who's possessed by a demon and they're like, all right, here we go. They come in, all seven of them, to exercise the demon. But, but they don't know Jesus. They're, they're not a friend of Jesus. They've not repented and trusted in Jesus as Lord and Savior. They just know of Jesus. They're, they're a friend of a friend of Jesus. And so they go to the demon possessed man. In the name of Jesus that Paul preaches, you need to get out. Demon talks back. Who are you? I mean, I know Jesus. I know who Jesus is, right? The, the Bible says the demons know Jesus and tremble. And I respect Paul, right? So word's probably gotten out among the demons that Paul's coming to town. He's exercising demons, and the demons are communicating about this, I'm sure. So he's got respect for Paul. And of course he knows Jesus, the Son of God. But who do you think you are? And then the man turns on these seven. One man versus seven men. Beats them, strips them naked. They run out screaming naked. And that, that was just, embar- just as embarrassing then as it would be today. Okay? It's because they didn't know Jesus. They knew of Jesus. They were a friend of a friend of Jesus. Now, while the demon-possessed man seemed to have won the day, God used this event for his glory and to lift up the Lord Jesus. Jesus' name is held in high esteem among the people. That means they recognize that a discipleship relationship with Jesus is a powerful thing. In other words, Jesus is legit. This is real. And to be one of his disciples means that your life will be changed. That he's powerful. Now this story provides us, part of the text, this part of the story provides us with two important lessons. The first one is this. The name of Jesus is no magical incantation. Now you probably don't see people walking around Key West, saying things in the name of Jesus and expecting things to happen. But while most people don't do that, there are some things that go on in people's lives using the name of Jesus as some sort of magical incantation. Our culture uses his name and Christian relics to try to experience the power of Jesus Like the sons of Sceva, where, you might ask? How many people walk around with a cross necklace around their neck and do not know Jesus? Feeling like if I just had the medallion here close to my heart, that things will work out. Maybe when things get difficult, I'll grab it and I'll kiss it. I've seen that on television. That cross, that, that trinket carries no more power than the things that that the spells that the men of Skiva were using. I've been in many a home that have a picture of Jesus on the wall, believing that if, if we just put this rendition of the Lord on the wall, that our home will be blessed. When if the Lord showed up in that house, he'd be turning over tables just like he did at the temple in Jerusalem. Heed this warning from Jesus, recording in Matthew chapter 7, verses 22 and 23. This is written to the friend of a friend of Jesus. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name? Didn't we drive out demons in your name? And do miracles in your name, and then I will announce to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you lawbreakers. Now that's the warning, but that comes on the heels of really, really good news. That if a sinner would repent of sin and trust in Jesus as Lord and Savior, we'll be saved, we'll be freed, we'll be a friend of Jesus, and we'll receive the salvation that comes from one who trusts in Him as Lord and Savior. But you can't be a friend of a friend of Jesus. You've got to turn from sin and trust in Him alone as Lord and Savior. It's about a discipleship relationship. It's about trusting in him alone, a personal relationship with Christ. Friend, today are you one of the seven sons of Skeva? Or are you are you like Paul? Are you one who knows of Jesus? Are you one who knows Jesus? Jesus is sovereign over everything in this world, and a disciple relationship, discipleship relationship with him is a powerful thing. Follow him, obey his commands, engage in his mission, and he will use you for amazing things. That's his promise. That's his desire for your life. He does this through a discipleship relationship. The power that Jesus displayed through Paul, that was recognized by the demon-possessed man, led to an amazing revival in Ephesus. Let's check out this next part of the text. The demonstration of power compelled the people to give up their idols and to give God glory. So this is what happened. People saw what happened to the seven sons of Sceva. They saw this demon-possessed man beat them and strip them naked, They saw that there was power in a relationship with Jesus. Not just power in knowing of Jesus, but power in walking with Jesus in a personal relationship. And so, like it often does, when we experience the movement and the glory of God, we're brought to repentance. And y'all that do your quiet time, y'all that spend time with the Lord, you know exactly what I'm talking about. When God displays His wonder, His glory, His might to you, there's nowhere left to go but down on your knees. Am I right? Recognizing the glory and the magnificence of God and His power. And that's exactly what happened next in Ephesus. Look at verse 18. And many who had become believers came confessing and disclosing their practices, while many of those who had practiced magic collected their books and burned them in front of everyone. So they calculated their value and found it to be 50,000 pieces of silver. In this way, the word of the Lord spread and prevailed. So the Ephesian people, especially the believers, responded to this great movement of God in two ways. Number one, verse 18 says, many who had become believers came confessing and disclosing their practices. So there were these believers, they were followers of Jesus, and as you know from your own life, there's a point where you turn from sin and trust in Jesus, and you're saved, and then at that point, God starts to shape you, right? And, and maybe after like two months, you recognize like, there's something in my life that, that's not good, right? I need to get rid of this. The Holy Spirit's convicting me. I shouldn't be doing that or saying that or feeling or thinking that, and so God over time starts to shed through the Holy Spirit and His Word, stuff from your life that doesn't belong there. He starts. He purifies us. He sanctifies us. So that's what's happened to these believers. So there's some believers in Ephesus who I think they're they're still following Jesus, but they're also still doing some of this magic. Uh, they're still pronouncing some of these incantations over people's lives. And so they they're they're syncretists, right? They they took Jesus. And they just kind of added him to everything else that they were already doing. That's called syncretism. And that was real common in that, that area, as you can see from the seven sons of Sceva, who were just grabbing stuff and trying to use it for their own benefit. There were others, I think, that were believers that had done this kind of stuff before they were Christians. And they wanted to publicly proclaim that, you know, I used to do that same thing. But in front of the church, in front of the city, I want to tell you guys, I don't do that anymore. And then some of them were holding on to these books. Now, these magic books that these people had, these were were handwritten books. And they were worth a lot of money. Some of them were holding on to these books. Now, they may not have been practicing that anymore, but they were holding on to the books because they were worth a lot of money. And so in Ephesus, which was founded upon the the worship of Artemis. The people had all kinds of idols. They had had all kinds of of magic and and all kinds of magic books. And, And so the believers at that point in Ephesus, they feel it's necessary for us to burn these books. These things are idols in our lives, they said. And so they take care of them. They burn them in front of everybody so everybody can see it. So in today's money the total amount of books that were burned there would have represented about $35,000 that's what they burned on the fire they recognized that these books these incantations this way of life this is preventing us from following jesus the way he wants us to these are idols in our life and so they burned them all in front of everybody a reverent fear came over a reverent fear of god overcame these new believers They were convicted of these unbiblical practices. They confessed. They declared their allegiance to Jesus. The second part of their response is they burned those books. Now, what is the consequence of the church's behavior in Ephesus? Look at verse 20. In this way, the word of the Lord spread and prevailed. Their obedience to God to destroy those idols in their lives led to the word of the Lord spreading and prevailing. That's really interesting. Oftentimes, the leadership and I at this church, we pray and think about how we can better fulfill the Great Commission, because that's our mission as a church, to fulfill the Great Commission. I think one way for us to do that as a church, one way we can demonstrate our faith in Jesus is like the Ephesians. We've got to get rid of the idols in our lives. I had a, a, a couple that I was um, serving up in Jacksonville a while back. I think we were at a conference. I don't think they're from Jacksonville, and we were talking with them about international service and just about what God's called them to do, and and they, they, they were kind of younger and just didn't know much about it. So I was telling them about it. And, and they said, how do you, how do you this is a, legit, a legitimate logistics question. Like, how do you get all of your stuff from America to the foreign mission field? I'm like, well, they ship it. And they're like, man, that would take like a whole ship for our stuff. I'm like, Oh. I said, well, if God calls you to be an international missionary, generally you get one small cargo container. A small one, not even like a semi-size, like a small one. Like a pod. And they looked at me and, I'm, I'm not kidding, okay, this is what they said. Wow, that, that probably means that we couldn't go overseas because we've got, we've got too much stuff. So we're not going to go overseas We're not going to follow God because we got too much stuff in America. God calls us also to get rid of idols that aren't our stuff. Sometimes we have idols like our way of life. I brought a few things that have been idols in my life in the past. We're Americans, we like our cars, don't we? Anybody in here like cars? It's okay. I'm going to raise my hand first. And y'all, I know more of y'all like cars, right? It's not a bad thing to like cars, right? What makes a car become an idol? Here's, here's how you can differentiate between something that you possess and something that you possess that becomes an idol in your life. When the thing you possess becomes the thing you worship instead of God, that's become an idol, Now, at the next level and probably the more convicting level, when God asks you to take the thing you possess and to give it to him or to get rid of it or to use it for his glory, and we say no, because that's mine, guess what that thing just became? That's an idol. We take that thing, we put it right here in that nice pedestal, God's called us to go this way, whatever that way is in your life. We've said, I don't think so, God. Instead, I think that I'll just stay right here and I'll bow down and worship this thing in my life. Because when you do what you want to do instead of what God wants you to do, that thing has become an idol in your life. It happens with cars. Some of us value over God security. Security. I want my life to be good. I want to have enough money. I want to be safe. Right? God blesses us with things. So I'm not not besmirching the the possessions you have. Those are given to you by God because God owns everything. So what you have is a blessing from him. Now when our desire for security stands between us and fulfilling God's calling upon our lives, guess what that thing became? So Idol. Here we are, right back here. Worshiping security instead of God. Anybody's toes hurt yet? One more, just in case I missed, in case I didn't hack anybody off. Ooh, we like these, don't we? <laughs> Social media? Games. This is how we connect with people, and this isn't necessarily a bad thing. But when we're on Facebook, instead of doing the things that God's called us to do with our family or in his word, I mean, I think anyone that has one of these that uses social media at some point in our life, we're probably guilty of the first thing we do and think of when we wake up is what? This thing. It's next to us in the bed. We care about what our friends liked or didn't like or Whatever, I know Facebook is old now, so there's other stuff that I don't use. But when this becomes the object of our affection, when this is the thing we care about when we wake up the most, when we look at this instead of reading our Bible, being at church, guess what that became? We set it up real nice, right on the stand. Whether it's your nightstand or a big, beautiful marble platform in Ephesus it's the same thing it's become an idol and so I think if we want this community to take us seriously I think if we want God to use us in a magnificent way like the people of Ephesus we've got to identify our idols and smash those things we got to burn those things and we got to remove them from the place of worship in our lives. So what's God calling you to do in response to the message today? I'm going to invite our team. They're going to come up. We're going to have a time of invitation. So if you're new here, in a minute everybody's going to stand up and we're going to respond to whatever God's called us to do. So we're going to stand in a second and um, you can come up here and pray at the altar. Maybe today you recognize, you know what, I have I'm I'm a friend of a friend like Grandma was a believer or, you know, Aunt Sue was a believer and she told me about Jesus and I've kind of been like riding her coattails thinking everything's going to be fine and I never actually made the decision to follow Jesus myself. That might be you. If, if that's you, come forward in a minute when we're singing and I want to walk you through that journey of being a friend of Jesus, of, of being saved. If you want to join this church and be a part of whatever we're doing or if you have an idol in your life, And that thing is controlling you. If that thing has become the object of your worship, this is the great news, the good news from Jesus. You can just give that thing up to him. You can come on up here if you want to and kneel at this altar and tell the Lord, Lord, I don't want this idol to be my life anymore. I want to give this to you. I want you to use this thing that I worship for your glory instead of for mine. I want to be available and ready to be used by you in mighty ways. Don't let this moment pass. If God's working in your heart, if you feel the tug of the Holy Spirit, take a step of faith and follow through with what God's called you to do. Would you all stand with me now? Heavenly Father, I pray over this time of invitation. And I ask, mighty Father, that you help us to follow you. Help the one who's lost that doesn't yet know you to be saved today. Help the one who's hurting and in need of prayer to receive the encouragement from you, your spirit, or a, another believer here in this place today. Help us to be encouraged that you are a God who uses us in mighty ways, that, that's given us a purpose and desires for us to have joy and peace Finally, God, help us to surrender that idol to you, whatever it is, so that we can follow you, so we can be used by you and demonstrate your power in this city. In Jesus' name I pray.